Welcome to the Dr. Wayne Dyer Radio Podcast. Discover the wisdom and remarkable insights of Dr. Dyer, world-renowned spiritual teacher and foremost authority on how the power of your mind creates your world. And the other day, uh, or maybe a couple weeks ago, I was uh, watching Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show. I don't know if you ever watched Jimmy. He's hilarious. He's more than hilarious. He's, he's so immensely talented. Uh, he's one of the few people can actually, I don't think there's ever a show that I don't really smile a lot and laugh out loud at uh, some of the antics and, uh, and, and, and watching his ability to, uh, you know, t- uh, to do imp- impersonations. He does just about anybody and, and dancing and singing and acting and, you know, and so, um, anyway, he came on and he had a, uh, a very bad accident at home. Um, he fell. And he was wearing he was wearing a, a wedding ring on his left uh, left hand, and that ring caught on on as he fell it caught on the edge of a table, and almost tore his finger off. I mean his finger was uh, instead of pointing straight up was pointing directly to the left. He looked at his finger and it's like it had almost broken off. And so they rushed him to the hospital and he um, had a. Uh, uh, he had to go to a very special uh, place because there's only a few specialists in the world who, who uh, do this kind of work, this microsurgery, where they have to take every single little stitch and it has to be done, you know, with this real great uh, uh, precision. Um, and he happened to get the guy who does this. Uh, and they put he was in intensive care for five days. Um, and now he's got this bandage on his finger and it's healing and eventually he's, his finger is going to be saved. It's going to take almost a year. What a crazy accident. Crazy Just such a accident. random thing Absolutely. like that. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, and he almost lost his finger. And he said, uh, the doctor who did it uh, said that most people do lose their finger when they have this. So get those wedding rings off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking down. Oh, I'm going right. to take this off. So, um, and then he, um, he, he, he came back a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, and he started explaining what had happened with the accident and that he was uh, <clears throat> in surgery and, 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 and that he was you know, tied up in intensive care for five days. Um, and he showed a book that he read, one of the books that he read. Um, and the book is called Man's Search for Meaning by uh, Viktor Frankl. Now, this is a book that I required all of my students to read when I was uh, teaching both in high school and when I taught at, uh, uh, in, in college and when I also taught in graduate school. Um, it was required reading. Everybody knew that if they took a course from Dr. Dyer, uh, they would have to read Man's Search for Meaning. Um, it was written by a man named Viktor Frankl, who in 1942, when I was two years old, um, was taken out of his home in Vienna and, and along with his wife, who was pregnant at the time, he was in his 20s, uh, he was a psychiatrist, and, um, and they took him, everything away from him. He was Jewish, and he was, put in, he was sent to Auschwitz, and he was in Auschwitz for three years, and then he went to Dachau uh, in Bavaria, near Munich. These are places that I have been to. I've really looked at that because it just, man's inhumanity to man has been always been one of my greatest uh, mysteries. You know, how can we possibly, when we come from such a place of divine love, turn our, our thoughts and our awareness into so much hatred and, and wanting to destroy each other and killing each other and judging each other and putting people into compartments and putting people into ovens. And, and you know, this, this took place in my life. I mean, you'd think it was the Middle Ages what was taking place, you know, when millions and millions of people were just being exterminated every day just because of their belief, because of their religion uh, or anything else. So anyway... Um, so he was placed into a concentration camp in, in Poland, and uh, 
and of every 28 people who went into uh, Auschwitz, uh, one would survive. So 27, out of your odds were 1 in 28 that you would come out of there alive. And he was one of the ones that did. And he talks about why he did. Um, and then in 19, that was, he was, uh, he, he was liberated in 1945 when I was five years of age. Again, it's still impossible for me to even conceive that this was all still taking in our place. Lifetime. When I was a little boy living in an orphanage in Michigan, uh, that um, that people were being gassed to death and so on. That's uh, it's just it's I, I still can't even comprehend that kind of thing. I have difficulty even with people having road rage or, or yelling at other people. I mean, I I'd like to be, consider myself a being of love and have no judgment towards anyone. <clears throat> So in 1978, I had written several uh, several best-selling books, Your Erroneous Owns, Pulling Your Own Strings. And because of that, I was invited to uh, to Vienna for, by YPO, the Young President's Organization. And I was placed on a panel with uh, two other people, Virginia Satir. I've talked about this on my show before, on this show before, who is a very prominent uh, conjoint family therapist, brilliant woman. And then also Viktor Frankl. And so the three of us made a presentation, and I was in such awe. By this time, I had been teaching at the university for six years, seven years, and I had also been out of teaching and uh, writing books and lecturing and appearing on The Tonight Show all the time with Johnny Carson and, and so on. It was just a regular part of my life. And because of the popularity of my books, and they had been translated into so many languages, including German, which he spoke, uh, the title of your erroneous zones in German is called der Wunderpunkt, which means your wondrous <laughs> points. Um, so <clears throat> when I was told that I was going to be on a panel with Viktor Frankl, I almost collapsed. I mean, I was just so uh, just just so th- thrilled and um, and and humble at the idea. Uh, this was this to me was one of the great men uh, of the 20th century, and there I was you know, considered an equal with him, which I didn't think of myself at all. And so um, I had read uh, Man's Search for Meaning way back there in the 60s and 70s, and I hadn't read it since. That's like now 35, 40 and years. And how old was he at, at this time? Um, he was born in 1905, so 1978. He was 73. He died in 1997 at the age of 92. Um, and he was lecturing all over the world and um, just one of the sweetest, kindest, most beautiful men that I'd ever, ever encountered. We went to lunch after my presentation, and I was stammering through my presentation because <laughs> I just couldn't believe that. And Viktor Frankl you're had— there talking to him. Well, he had actually read my book in German and, and was talking about it. I was just like, you know, I was just so, uh, just so honored. Uh, and and so um, after lunch, we went uh, – uh, after the pr- presentation, we went to lunch together. And I remember him saying to me, he said, Wayne, he said, when, you, when we are confronted with a situation over which we have no control, he said, we are, we are challenged to change ourselves. And he said, the problem is that most people cannot change themselves because they're so, they're so caught up in their beliefs about – uh, what is real and what isn't real and what is true and what isn't true. And this is my perceptions of reality. And, and he, he, would, he, used to, he gave an example in the talk. He said that we were given a, a, a bowl of dirty water and um, a floating dead fish head floating. And he said that was our protein for the day. And he said we were challenged to not only not judge that and not only not be angry about it, 
but to, um, to find beauty in it, to be able to find beauty, to be able to see beauty everywhere, even in the suffering that was taking place. And the, uh, the immense amount of suffering that took place, the people, that, the beatings that he took, the, the, the frostbitten feet that he you know, had to work out in, in, uh, from early morning until night. He was a, he was a prisoner who was on, put on work details. He was a medical doctor. Um, and his, he didn't know it at the time, but his entire family, except for one sister who emigrated to Australia, all of them, his wife, she was the first day that she was taken, she was gassed to death, his uh, mother and his father... And the only reason that he stayed in Vienna, because he knew what was coming, was because of his elderly parents. He just said that he had to stay there and be with them, even though they had asked him to leave. He said he couldn't. Um, and, the, and the kinds of things that he did and so on. And so I, when Jimmy Fallon held up this book, which I'm holding in my hand right now, um, I, uh, I thought, you know what, I've got to reread that. Uh, it really touched me in such a deep way. And so I, I bought it and read it on the plane. And, and, and this this past week, I, I've studied it again. And there's one there's one sentence in there, one little part of the paragraph that I wanted to just share with you because so many people um, talk on the show um, talk about their suffering. Now, the, the kind of suffering you it's hard to even imagine the kind of suffering. Imagine your home. You're in your home today, and you get there. And there's a bunch of Gestapo and Nazis there, and they just right, with guns and yeah, pulling and, you out of your house. And they just take you away, and everything that you ever owned or that you ever is just gone. It's given, you know, taken away, and uh, you know, it's given to somebody else. And you're put on a train with thousands of other people, and on this train, you would be uh, sent away to a concentration camp, and. Uh, you know, at the sign at the door, uh, or at the gate of Auschwitz said, uh, abandon hope, all you who enter here. You know, it's like, there's no hope for you. You know, you, you are a prisoner. You are the lowest form of humanity. You will die here. Um, and you will be put to work until you can't walk anymore, and then you will die. And he took notes on this throughout his entire time. So it's just, so when we talk about suffering, you know, it's, uh, and, and for him to do this for three years in bitter cold, uh, until he was finally liberated, and he was a skeleton when he was liberated, and so were so many others. And um, this is what it says, uh, this, this one little sentence, is, um, he said, if there is meaning in life at all, then there must be meaning in suffering. Suffering is an ineradicable part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. And he makes the case in this book, in Man's Search for Meaning, that any suffering that we go through, whatever it might be, emotional suffering, physical suffering, pain of illnesses, the, the pain of loss, you know, relationships that, uh, that break up and so on, that it's, it's, it's an opportunity. He said there's basically three ways to find meaning in life. One is through your work for whatever it is that you come here to do and you can, you know, you can feel meaning. Another is in love. Uh, in relationships and so on, you can find meaning in being able to love as God loves us because we come from love. And he said the third way is in suffering. And I think back of the, in, in my own lifetime of the, uh, <clears throat> the, the suffer, any suffering that I've done in my life, um, which is in the overcoming of, uh, of having to live in an, in an orphanage and having been abandoned as a child, um, the, uh, the struggle of overcoming addictions earlier in my life, struggle or the, the suffering uh, involved in, a, in a, a breakup when my wife and I separated 16 years ago. Um, 
And out of every single one of them, as I began to examine my own life, out of every single one of them, I found very powerful meaning. It was, um, it was in, um, I think, 2001 or so that um, I was in just a deep state of, of sadness and almost depression. Um, and, and it was out of that, that state of when my wife and I separated and all that. And, uh, and my wife and I are very close to, to this day. We're, we're not living together, but we're very close. She's going on the cruise with us when we go to Israel. Um, and we speak almost every day. And we love each other very much. Um, but at that time, um, I was forced to look at myself and to see out of this suffering, what, you know, what meaning can I find in this suffering? And that's when I wrote The Power of Intention, which is uh, some people that's think one of it, my favorites. Yeah, some people <laughs> think of it as I went back and reread The Power of Intention when I was um, uh, writing I Can See Clearly Now, when I looked through the different phases and what was going on. And, I just couldn't believe how good it was. I, I couldn't believe that I could have written that, that I that I could have put that kind of energy and time and that I found all of that information. I was just... Uh, but you couldn't have had you not gone through I couldn't what know you that, went through. Yeah, it was the... Because when you when you get into suffering, one of the things Victor Frankl talks about is, is, is compassion and how suffering brings you to a state of compassion. He says, not for everyone. He said, it's, it, it, everyone reacts a little bit differing to, different to the suffering. So that some people in the suffering became the, the lowest form of, of who they were would come out, and they they would uh, they would steal somebody else's bread, and there were other people who would find meaning in it and, and share their bread with someone who was a little, who would give their shoes away to someone who was uh, you know who was had frostbitten feet and so on, so that it, you know for some people suffering meant one thing and for some others it just meant giving up and not finding it. And the idea of, and he quotes Dostoevsky, the great Russian writer, and uh, Dostoevsky says, uh, he said, I always had to ask the question, am I worthy of my suffering? Am I worthy of it? And um, I think I asked myself that very same question in my life when I was going through some of the some of the things that are so minor compared to what some people have had to put up with in their life, like Dr. Frankel. And then... Uh, on page 153, I said, I've got to read this on my radio show. Whenever I do this, I want to share these things with my reader because I wrote next to it in the margin. <laughs> it says, wow. It says, wow, yeah. <laughs> on the page. And this is uh, what I want to share with you, and then we'll open up the phones. Sigmund Freud once asserted, let one attempt to expose a number of the most diverse people uniformly to hunger which, and hunger is such a part of this book, you know, being, able to, being without food because they would just get a gram or two of food and they had to, you know, oftentimes just scrounge around for just a few crumbs and so on. So let, let one attempt to expose a number of this most diverse people uniformly to hunger with the increase of the imperative urge of hunger, all individual differences will blur and in their stead will appear the uniform expression of the one unsettled urge. So that's Freud's idea, that uh, all individual differences will melt away when we're confronted with a basic need of, of hunger. So it's like, and, and we'll all just uh, you know, <clears throat> be consumed with uh, our need for that. And Viktor Frankl says, Thank heaven Sigmund Freud was spared knowing the concentration camps from the inside. His subjects lay on a couch, designed in the plush style of Victorian culture, not in the filth of Auschwitz. 
There, the individual differences did not blur, but on the contrary, people became more different. <clears throat> people unmasked themselves, both the swine and the saints. And today, you need no longer hesitate to use the word saints. Think of Father Maximilian Kolbe, who was starved and finally murdered by an injection of carbolic acid at Auschwitz, and who in 1983 was canonized. That, that just because you're faced with like the, the, the most horrible conditions that a human being can be faced with, you can become worthy of your suffering. And some people did, and you know, even went into the gas chambers you know, with a prayer on their lips, uh, finding meaning even in that kind of thing. So as you think about your calls to me and, <clears throat> and about your life and about the suffering that, um, that you experience, ask yourself the question that Fyodor uh, Dostoevsky asked himself. Am I worthy of my suffering? Is this one of the opportunities for me to find meaning in my life? And it doesn't have to be uh, something where I just give up on myself and, uh, and become what, what he called swine. You can become a saint as well in the midst of your suffering. And I like to think that the suffering that I've experienced in my own life, the separations, the anxieties, the stress, the, you know, the fears, have really uh, helped me to become a better person, to find more meaning in my life. And some of the best things I've done, some of the best talks I've ever given were when I was suffering inside and struggling and was able to just develop a kind of compassion for others. And pull something beautiful right. out of that. Yeah. Such an amazing lesson yeah. and such a strong message. So I, I, would, I just urge you all. I, I used to tell my students, and I often say in my lectures, Man's Search for Meaning is uh, – and, and <clears throat> this book's got some uh, additional essays in the back. So, But you can read the book in about two hours. It's really not that long. But the And it was written shortly after he um, was liberated. And it's, uh, it's hard for you not to ask yourself the question, how would I have done? How would I have done? Would I have survived that? I, I, I wonder. I, mm. I don't know. I like to think I'm good in a crisis. Yeah. <laughs> but again, presented with something mm. like that that is really unimaginable, mm. I, I wonder how I do. But right. I think it's interesting what you said, too, about how the true nature would come out mm. where some people would be more compassionate right. and as a result be more resilient than the ones that... Well, I think of Gandhi, yeah. uh, you know, and, and uh, I think of Martin Luther King, um, that, uh, you know, despite the beatings, despite the starvation, despite, you know, all of the things that were being done, um, they they found, you know, I mean, Gandhi found a way to, to rally his people to overcome the, the entire British Empire. Martin Luther King. I mean, if you've seen Selma, have you seen the film Selma? It's a very uh, powerful yeah. movie. I was, I was almost there. I was on my way to go down there in, uh, you know, 50 years ago when, that's, when that took place. But it's, uh, I didn't, but I was doing a, a lot of other things. But he, uh, he still found a, a way to find meaning in, in not, in, in to use nonviolence rather than to take on the same kind of actions and, and, and repay the violence that was being visited on them in the same way, that we have to be better than that. Mm -hmm. Think of Jesus, you know, on, on a cross, you know, being, <clears throat> being tortured. And a soldier throws a spear into him, and his response is, uh, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they do. I think he meant they don't know that when they throw a spear into me, they're throwing a spear into all of humanity.
To find out more about Dr. Wayne Dyer or any other Hay House author, please visit hayhouse.com. Thank you for listening.